Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, I want to get right into it this morning. Um, I want to talk about being a father figure. Say father figure. Uh, the title for the, today's talk is A Better Father Figure. Say better. And I want to start out here with scripture, which is really odd at a church, I know. But I, look at, I want to look at Titus. Um, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to Titus. Uh, he actually wrote this somewhere around AD 63. This was just after his uh, release from his first Roman imprisonment. And during this time, he had left Timothy. How many remember the, uh, Timothy was one of his really disciples? And what I see here is I see that the Apostle Paul had spiritual sons. Uh, those who would see him as a spiritual father, as a figure that was a father in his life. And so he left uh, Timothy in Ephesus to do some ministry there. And then he took Titus with him to the go to, uh, they call it the island of Crete. And so there was these different churches that were being established here in the islands. And so this was really Titus's early experience of what ministry was all about. But he writes something really important here because you know how Paul, a lot of times in his letters, I mean, the letter to the Galatians especially, he's fighting uh, this false doctrine, these false ideas, things that are trying to add something to the gospel and to Jesus. And so we really see some of the issues going on here in this church uh, kind of like the church in Corinth where people weren't really reflecting the truth of who they were. And so he writes this in chapter 2, starting with verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to some men. I knew Bruce would catch that. This alone is a powerful statement. Like, we could just chew on this for an hour. For the grace of God has appeared. Say, say thank you, Jesus. What does the grace of God do? It brings salvation to all men. This is powerful. And this is really the ministry of Paul to say, listen, when Jesus, when Jesus did what he did, when he finished the work, he brought salvation to all men. Now let's preach the good news to awaken to it. Amen? Look at this in verse 12. What does salvation do? This is powerful instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. I'd like to say it like this, instructing us to deny the false ideas we have about ourselves. See, the only time that we walk about ungodly or not reflecting the image of God is when we don't know who we are. The grace of God in this salvation instructs us. It helps us. It, it's there to say, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not who you are. Isn't this powerful? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to do what? To live sensibly. Come on, we could use that. To live righteously. In other words, to live out your true identity and to live godly. Reflect the image of God in your life. Where? In this present age. This is a great, this is a great passage here. And I, and I believe what, what we need to do, what we need to understand, this is so powerful, is that all good things in life are built on the revelation that my heavenly Father loves me more than I know and his grace is sufficient. The two things you'll probably hear more than anything else here at Faith City Church is that God loves you more than you know and his grace is sufficient. It never runs out. It never runs dry. 
There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. You just can't. Nothing. I love when the Apostle Paul goes through this whole list of things that can never separate you. I mean, angels, powers, anything. But he even says, or any created thing. Remember the first time I read that, I went, I'm a created thing. That means even I can't separate myself from the love of God. It's such a powerful truth. But we have to understand that this is the revelation, I believe, that will change our hearts, that will change men, that will bear fruit, that will then, in essence, change our world. Do you want to see the world changed? It's not by electing a different politician. I'm not saying not to vote. I'm not saying maybe some aren't better in certain areas than others. I'm just saying that the answer isn't politicians. It isn't different church leaders. It's Jesus. And it's the revelation of of Jesus within me and who I am. Amen? Has anyone ever heard of transition lenses? Yeah. Yeah. You have some? Yeah. Yeah, you're cool. Gene's cool. Say, Gene, you're cool. Transition lenses. You know, I remember my grandpa would have these. And he would come outside from working in the yard or something and be like, why is he wearing sunglasses? But eventually it would fade down, right? But just think about just the innovation that we have in so many levels to even go, hey, you know what? Instead of having to do this and put on a new pair, you can have one pair that does it all. Now, I haven't even arrived at that status yet. Like, I have prescription Oakleys. I mean, they look cool, but I also can see. So it makes me even cooler. So when you stumble around, you're not so cool anymore. You know, and that's without a few beers, right? It's Father's Day. I don't know what's going on. But, you know, it's such an innovation. But I was thinking about this idea of transition lenses. What causes transition lenses to change the way that you see? When you walk into the light, the light of the sun. What changes the way we see in our spiritual life? Walking into the light, the light of the sun. It just changes our perspective. It changes how we see. How many times have you heard that it's important that we see things, whether it's scripture or other people of the world, through the lens of Jesus? Right? It's important that we see through that lens of the finished work of Christ. But here's the thing. In order to walk in that, we have to see the transition. Say this, I have to see the transition. This is where faith comes in. You know, because I've, I've had people ask me this question with how I preach, and I preach Jesus so good, and I preach God so good. to be like, well, are you just saying everyone's saved? And I'm like, well, first of all, we have to look into the definition of what saved is. Salvation right? The word sozo, it means preservation, safety, healing, deliverance, wholeness. It's actually translated in the New Testament as healing sometimes. When it says that they received healing or were healed, it's actually the same word that we translate salvation. Well, when you look around you, is everyone delivered? Now, maybe Christ has finished the work, but have we tapped into that yet? And so I'm like, well, then, of course not, okay? But something that we have to see is Christ has already finished the work, and what we need to do is we need to awaken to what Christ has already done. When someone prays the sinner's prayer, Jesus doesn't die on the cross again. Everything goes through, like in a movie, back through time. It's like, okay, I'm saved now. 
because everything happened again. It's already happened. I mean, Paul just told us this, right? He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But my point is, faith is that moment where we begin to see the truth of what Christ has done. We begin to see the truth of who we are and whose we are. That's called awakening. And so when we awaken to that, then we can begin to, and this is the thing about it, it's a journey, right? And so it's never perfect. And so I want to get into that today as we look at this idea of transition. We have to see the transition, and the only way to see that is through the light, or we could say the revelation of Christ. Let's look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And as we get into this, we're going we're gonna to take a path, and it's going to lead us somewhere, so stick with me. But we're going to look at a few different fathers today, including Father Abraham. Look at this in Romans 4, starting at verse 1. This is describing, this is Paul describing the relationship that Abraham had with God. He says, what then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not toward God. That's why it's important to see that salvation is not something we earn, not something that we somehow, hey, I I got enough points, I can get it now. Nope, nope, it's a free gift. You can't earn it. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What made Abraham righteous? Belief. Okay, we're getting real basic here, but stick with me. You have to have foundation, right? So we can see here that before Christ, right, before the law, Abraham received righteousness by believing. It seems really simple. Verse 4, now to him who works, the reward is not counted as grace, but as something owed. But to him who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's trying to to draw a parallel between Father Abraham. That that was a forefather to them, right? Father Abraham, his righteousness was based on belief. And then he's he's pulling it all the way forward to his time frame. And he's saying, and it's the same with us. It's not working for it. It's believing that it's already done. I know, very simple, very basic, but stick with me, okay? Because right here what we see is we see the transition, We see the transition between the old and the new, the old covenant, the new covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament. We could say the old way of doing things and the new way. What was the old way? If you act right, you get blessed. If you act wrong, something had to die. Come on. Right? The wages of sin is death. So what do we do? We sacrifice an animal. This is what they did in their time. We get a sheep, a goat a bull, a turtle dove, whatever you could get your hands on, whatever you could afford. I do think it's kind of interesting. I said this before, and I can't get too deep into that day because I have 21 minutes left on the clock. But I do think it's interesting when you look at the sacrificial system, when you look at the law, you get this feeling through the prophets that it didn't, It didn't do its job in that people weren't getting where it was supposed to take them to. Because by the time we get to the prophets, they're saying things like, 
you know, as oracles of God, I'm sick of your feasts and your festivals and your sacrifices. Well, wait, God, I thought you required this. Interesting. It makes you start to go, well, was that a requirement or was it a step toward something new? And what's cool is even in this sacrifice, even in the law, if you just look through it, I mean, there's so many different things. You know that an eye for an eye was a giant leap forward from what culture did at the time. I mean, at the time, if your servant bumped into you, you could just kill him. You, you bumped into me. I'm glad that doesn't happen today. Whew, dear God, they're going to Cedar Point tomorrow. I'm glad that's not the rule. So we look at it like an eye for an eye, man. That's pretty barbaric. Yeah, a giant leap forward from what was before. But then Jesus says, you've heard it said. Come on. But I say to you, love your enemy. Giant leaps forward. It took time. But what we see is this transition. I was going to say this. You know, a sheep, a goat, a bull, a turtle dove, how many know they have different value? And I think Bruce might have said something about this once, but the fact that turtle dove was included, it was literally something that even a poor person could go out into the wilderness and find rather cheap if not free. What it was saying is everyone's invited to this. Come on, are you catching this? I want everyone to be able to participate because in this time, that blood would cover your sin or your transgression, and you would feel like, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay for another year. But how many know that it's so much better with Jesus? There's no year-to-year thing. It's past, present, and future. Sin is wiped away. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus coming up before he's baptized who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to even get deeper, we could say he takes away that false identity that causes you to do the actions that you do. Come on, someone. This is powerful. And so we know from this that our righteousness is now based on the sacrifice of Christ. Again, enter Abraham. By the way, Abraham was about 430 years before the law. Did you know that? Abraham didn't participate in that system. Yet he is really our example of life under a covenant of grace. So, you know, often I'll be like, yeah, this is the new way. Jesus introduced a new way. Well, it's kind of a new old way. It's kind of the way that God always operated, but we just weren't aware because we got caught up in our rituals and ceremonies and our sacrifices to a point where we thought this would appease, blood would appease God. But God isn't like Janus or Moloch or numerous other gods that were served by other cultures who needed blood to be pacified. Yahweh was different. And so through the prophets, we see that the people weren't getting this. But jump forward in uh, chapter 4 to verse 6 here. This is really cool because even King David, say King David. King David got this. Look at this. So even King David himself speaks, this was in Psalm 32, regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. What does David say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin. Now for us, we're like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Sounds like somebody reading the Bible. These were Old Testament folks. Abraham was an Old Testament. King David was literally, he was under the law. 
but yet saw this new way. But in the case of Abraham, here's a question. Did God ever impute sin to Abraham? I gave you the answer. What's it say? Never. And you're like, Pastor, this is getting a little crazy here. I mean, that's not how God works. Well, listen, I'm just reading Scripture. How many Bible-believing Christians we got here this morning? So I'm just going to go, I'm going to roll with the Bible here. You okay with that? Here's the thing. God never imputed sin to Abraham, yet Abraham wasn't always faithful to God. Did you know that? This is what I love about the Bible. It never tries to clean stuff up to make it look a little better than it really was. I mean, even King David, come on. I mean, the guy had a guy killed so he could, like, take his wife. That's craziness. But, honestly, we're going to look at that in just a minute. That's what kings did back then. So, he was acting like any worldly king would act. But yet he still somehow was like, God, you are so good. You'll never count sin against me. But Abraham wasn't always faithful to God. You know, at one point, there's a famine that hit Canaan. And so he fled to Egypt. Think about this. Because he lacked, or we could even say lost faith in the promise that God would bless him. God said, Abraham, I will take care of you. Don't worry about this. I got your back. And he's like, sounds good, Lord. There's a famine. I'm going to go somewhere else for my provision. Right, another king. I like that, man. You're just adding to my stuff here, Bruce. This is good. He decided to go to another king to get provision. And yet God said, I promise you, you'll be the father of many nations. You will have so much wealth and so much that you'll never have need of anything. Abraham's like, sounds good. I'll take a rain check on that. There's a famine. I'm going to Egypt. Then while he's in Egypt, get this, he lies to the pharaoh. The Pharaoh sees his wife. Now, Sarah must have been something, man, because, like, he had to lie and say that she was his sister. Because here's the thing. If he said, she's my wife, again, fear crept in. If he said, she's my wife, the king could do the exact same thing that King David did. That's what kings do. I'm going to take your wife. I'm going to knock you off. And so he thought, out of fear, I'll just say it's my sister. All he was doing was protecting his own rear end. Because his wife was taken. It's like, dude, what about her? What about, you know, you know, going to her, you know, aid and her? Nope, nope, that's my sister. Yeah, yeah, go for it. And it's crazy to think about. Listen, I know Father Abraham, he's holy. He's right. Yeah, he's righteous because of belief, not because of actions. And so he flees. He finds provision under another king. I like that. And then he lies to the Pharaoh. And guess what happens to the Pharaoh? He gets struck with a disease. And they were very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Help me with this. Like down in Louisiana, superstitious. I don't know why I went to Louisiana with that, but. (laughs) You know, when I visit the voodoo shops down there. Anyway. But they're very superstitious. So he's like, okay, this, I just took this woman as, I don't know, what, a wife? Someone to be, who knows? I took her. And now I'm struck with a disease. He confronts Abraham. Abraham's like, yeah, sorry, dude, I lied. (laughs) So you know what the Pharaoh does? He says, you get out of here. Oh, by the way, here's some sheep, some cattle, some donkeys, and some servants. He gets blessed for lying. This isn't a very Christian story. I don't like this. So then obviously he must have thought, man, this is the way to get stuff, because then he lies again. 
Same lie, different leader, King Abimelech. Same thing. What's the king do? Sweet, it's your sister. I'll take her. That's what kings do. But I won't kill you because you're just a brother. Thank you for blessing this. What happens to King Abimelech? This is crazy. God appears to the king in a dream and threatens his life. What? Why did he appear to Abraham in a dream and threaten him for lying? Are you following this story? Like this, to me, this is one of those things you're like, what is going on here? Not only that, the king says to Abraham, you know what? Get out of here. You're done. Oh, before you go, here's some more sheep, cattle, donkeys, and servants. He gets blessed for lying. Now, don't tell this to your kids. The lesson is that you get blessed when you lie. <laughs> right? The lesson is that God's grace and his promise don't stop even when you mess up. Why? Abraham wasn't under law. Abraham had a covenant of grace with God. You're picking this up. The same covenant that we're in today. Now, here's the thing. We always have to, you know, what's the word? Man, I can't think of words today. I'm so excited I get to go home and grill. But so many times we have to be like, be careful, though. What we're not saying is, listen, grace teaches you to say no to sin. How do we know that Abraham was on a journey? It took time. But what I see here is that God has more confidence in his gospel than we do many times. God has more confidence in his goodness and his kindness to lead us to repentance than we do. See, in these moments, God didn't find it necessary to the man he had covenant with to berate him and to beat him over the head with scripture verses and tell him how bad he was and how he didn't measure up. In the midst of him messing up, (laughs) not trusting, lacking faith, not believing. This is the crazy thing is he said, I believe you, but then he kind of didn't because he went somewhere else. And then he lies two different times and God blesses him? What is up with this? He doesn't impute sin to him? Listen, we're living in the same way. God doesn't count our sin against us. This doesn't compute, does it? It just doesn't make sense. You know, it didn't make sense to those that Paul was writing either in Romans, because in Romans 6.1, he deals with this line of thinking. Think about this. We just read chapter 4, and we're reading about all this goodness and this grace and this love and how God doesn't impute sin against us. But then he has to make this statement. He says, well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And I love his answer in verse 2, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So can you see it does, it does have an ending point. It's saying that you've, you've died to sin. Sin no longer has power over you. If sin has power over you, it's because you don't see yourself fully as who you are yet. Why? It's a journey. We can see this in the life of Abraham. But here's the thing. Our righteous status with God is unchanging. But sin has consequences. We can sum it up like this. God not imputing sin unto us doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our actions. Do you follow me? So, again, I would never say, hey, sin's great, go do it, 
I give you a license. There's licenses in the back if you need to. And then you can come back and confess and you're all good. First of all, I don't need to do that because we all make dumb decisions, right? And how many know that dumb decisions reap uh, dumb harvest and dumb results? But here's the thing. In the midst of dumb choices, God is with you. God is on your side. We can see it in the life of Abraham. And guess what? We're under the same covenant of the grace. So no matter what choices we make, we're promised that God will never leave us nor forsake us. How many are familiar with this in Hebrews 13.5? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You know, if you just dig a little bit deeper into the actual Greek here, this statement, translated verbatim is this. Now listen closely because it's going to like make your head go, huh? This is how it's translated. Never not you will I leave, nor never not you will I forsake. All you grammar champions are like, whoa, that's, that's not right. Why? Because in the English language, whenever there's, there's double negatives, what does it do? It cancels out. So when you're reading this, you know, they had, to, they had to put it in a way that in English we would get it. Because if we read it like this, we're like, wow, so that means he will forsake me and he will leave me. Right? But get this. In the Greek and the Hebrew language, as a matter of fact, when you have a double negative, it increases the power of what's being said. And what's crazy here is that this is a double negative followed by a triple emphasized negative. Meaning, I will never leave you or forsake you to the fifth power. In other words, ain't going to happen. Come on, somebody. I just, you know, a couple of Holy Ghost goosebumps right there. That's, that's powerful to me. I'm getting emotional. Whoa, what's going on here? The promise that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you to the fifth power, that doesn't make you go looking for things to sin with and do more sins for. You begin to go, I have confidence in my God. You're here with me. Even when I do dumb things, when I roll over in that ditch that I probably maybe caused myself, you're right there with me saying, you ready to get up? You ready to get out of the ditch? Look at the ditches Abraham fell in, and God never left him. He never referred to him as unrighteous. In fact, he continued to bless his life. Why? To say, my kindness and my goodness will draw you to mind change. It will draw you to repentance. Not so much that you can see me differently, but so you can see yourself differently. Because when you begin to see yourself right, the outflow of that is right actions. The outflow of that is the reflection of God himself. I will never leave you. Say, God, you'll never leave me. Say, God, you'll never forsake me. This term forsake in the original actually carries the idea of provision. So think about this. God is strongly emphasizing to the fifth power that he will never leave us alone in a state of utter hopelessness. Never, ever. Now, is it challenging, this, this moment we're going through possibly? Yeah, perhaps. Is it difficult? No doubt. 
But guess what? Never hopeless. Because he'll never leave us destitute. Back to Abraham. If you, if you want to see obedience, what do you do? You just look to Father Abraham. This grace that he was under, it didn't teach him to live a lifestyle of sin. This grace that he was under caused him to fall completely in love with God. How do we know this? Because when the greatest requirement of any man was laid at Abraham's doorstep, he didn't, didn't hesitate to obey God for one minute because he trusted him. It's when God said, will you sacrifice Isaac to me? Now, Isaac was the promise, right? A father of many nations. It's got to start with at least one kid. But what's interesting here is because he saw God to be faithful to him, even when he was unfaithful, reminds me of 2 Timothy, when Paul writes, even when we're faithless, he is faithful. Listen, his faithfulness isn't dependent on yours. Come on. Listen, I used to preach things a little different because I had a different idea, and I could, I could ramble up, wrangle up, whatever the word, some scripture verses, and tie them together and make a pretty little message that said, you better get right or you're not going to be blessed. Now, again, I'm not saying you get blessed for sin or doing things wrong, but what I'm saying is God doesn't withhold love or blessing from you because you mess up. Come on. And so he saw God to be faithful even when he was unfaithful. And so what happens? God asks Abraham for the most valuable thing in his life, his son Isaac. And what does he do? He does not hesitate. When you look at this portion of the story in Scripture, there's no record of hesitation. In fact, he got up early the next morning. Say early. I think I might have laid in bed for a little bit thinking about this. I'm just being honest. Like, are you sure? He had already cut the wood for the sacrifice. Can you put this in perspective? He's going to put his son on an altar. He's going to kill him, and he's going to burn him. I know that sounds barbaric. The story isn't over, right? So he gets up early. He already cut the firewood, and then he took a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. Three days. What was going through his mind in those three days? I know what would have gone through mine. Did I hear God right? But this shows the faith that Abraham had because when he finally gets to the place, he says to the servants, he says, the boy and I are going to go over there to worship, and we will come back to you. Not I, or I'm hoping both. He says, we will, say will, come back to you. Abraham was, he had a conviction. He just knew in his heart of hearts, this is the promise. And God is not one who breaks promises. He's not one that takes back the promise. So you're going to have to perform a miracle or something, but I'm going to follow through on this. Why? Abraham trusted God. Scripture said that he was a friend of God. And even when Abraham messed up, God was good to him. You see, God's goodness brought Abraham to the place of total and complete trust. But listen to me, this took time. Say time. You know, I don't know if it's the society we live in. I don't know if it's always been like this with humanity. But we want to see immediate change. Just, just normal things like, you know what, January 1st, I'm changing my diet, I'm going to exercise. And then four days later, we get on the scale and we're all mad because nothing moved. Why? We want immediate change. Sometimes I can do this with my kids. You change your attitude right now. That, 
All right. Tara, Tara's part of it. Now I got Bruce and Tara helping me out today. This is beautiful. But you know, it. think about this as a parent. This takes faith. And Kristen has, has really helped me in this to say, honey, you've already talked to them. Let them process. Because a lot of times we grow up in homes where we're not allowed to process. You change now, I want it notified in the tone of your voice and your face now. Well, I don't, I'm not like that. My wife tries to say, you, you get it together now. And I do, because I don't want to get in more trouble. It's Father's Day. I can get away with some of this. It's awesome. For now, okay. Tomorrow there's hell to pay. Praise the Lord. Grace at church, law at home. All right. That's what I tell my kids. But all of us as humans, I mean, if something rubs us the wrong way or our plans are turned upside down, it, it's never immediate. It takes time. And so that's something I've had to learn. But see, we want that. We want immediate change. And then what happens, especially in religious circles, we go into micromanagement mode. I'm going to micromanage people into the fruit of the Spirit. Hallelujah. But that's not how it works. Because the fruit of the Spirit's produced by the vine and the branch, or by the, the vine and the vine dresser. You're just a branch. The fruit comes from who? The Lord. And so we can't micromanage people into this. I heard a pastor say this one time. He said, it's like, it's like churches are Christian daycares, right? We try to set the parameters and everything around for safety and give them the pamphlets and give them the lists and make sure everything's good. We've got we to make sure everything's good. But listen, church shouldn't be a Christian daycare. It's a place where we get bumps and bruises. We screw up sometimes. We mess up. We have people who encourage us. No, you could do it. You can do better. That's, you're better than that. The truth of who you are doesn't reflect those actions Hey, man, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Come on. You know, it took Abraham over 20 years to come to a place of obedience. And God was faithful to him the entire 20, even when he wasn't. Over 20 years later, he comes to a place where he says, I trust you, God. Why? Because you've never withheld your love. You've always had grace toward me. You've even blessed me when I didn't deserve it. You were faithful when I was faithless. And so it comes to this point where when he's asked to give the most precious thing to him, I can say this as a father. I can't imagine hearing these words, but here's the good news. God never wanted or needed Isaac. In fact, if you read the story to the end, God actually supplied another sacrifice in place of Isaac. It says, it says the angel of the Lord stopped him, and then he looks over, and there's a ram caught in the thicket. Must have been a coincidence. I've heard it preached like this, that while, while Abraham and his son were coming out Mount Moriah on one side, God had provision coming up the other, and it was already there. See, Abraham learned an important lesson that day that God wasn't like the other gods of other cultures. See, why, did, why didn't, I should say, Abraham hesitate? Abraham didn't hesitate because that's what the God asks. That's what the gods asked of you. Many cultures, they would ask for your firstborn. That's just how it worked. And so Abraham must have went, okay, well, I guess, I guess God's like every other God, but 
he made me a promise, so we will come back, he told the servants. But in that moment, he stops and why? He wanted to say, Abraham, I'm not like any other God. I don't require child sacrifice. It's a powerful lesson. We thought, man, why did he have to go through all that? Listen, it's his culture. It's the way it worked. But I do believe this, that in the story, God wanted to show the world that my grace works. My grace is sufficient. You can count on my grace. And guess what? We have the same grace and goodness provided to us through the cross. Paul says in Galatians 3, starting in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. See, the curse has been lifted. We've been redeemed. I'm just having you say that. It's not in the actual verse. Look at this. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, now, now catch the next few words here, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Full circle. Do you see this? This is why Paul was writing in Romans. He's like, you guys have got to see the parallel here. This is how God has always wanted to have relationship with humankind, with mankind. This is, this is how relationship is. If you want to get really technical, let's call it a grant covenant. There are several covenants in the Bible, but this is a grant covenant. A grant covenant is I have everything, and I bestow it to you, and you give nothing in return. That's like the best covenant ever. Here's what I found, though. The more that I realize how amazing this covenant is, that God has already given me everything for life and godliness, do you know what I desire to do? To please God, to make the right decisions, to do the right thing, to reflect his image in this world. Do you catch this? It's his kindness and his goodness that draws me to a place of repentance, metanoia, changing my, my mind, being able to see things differently, see myself differently, and say, I'm going to make better choices. Why? Because I'm better than that. Come on, someone. That's what changes the heart. Knowing that God is with you amid good or bad decisions deposits such a trust in him and his faithfulness. Here's the thing. Legalism teaches us how to trust ourselves. Grace teaches us to trust our Heavenly Father. Amen. So in conclusion this morning, what I see here is we have three fathers. We have our Heavenly Father. We have Father Abraham, and then we have fathers here today, whether you're here physically or you're watching online. And so, number one, do we see how God, our Father, treats us? We can see through all these stories that he has this unconditional love toward us. Can we see that? Do we see... His goodness, do we see his grace that draws us to him, that kindness that draws us to a different way of thinking? Secondly, do we see Abraham, Father Abraham's complete trust in God because of his goodness, because of his grace? And it's a trust that, guess what, led to obedience. Was Abraham obedient the first 20-some years? Not always. But he came to a place when the hardest thing ever could be asked of a father he did it without hesitation why he trusted the lord but then thirdly can we see as fathers here today that god shows the same goodness toward us it's not just because it was abraham abraham was tall enough and good enough and kind enough or whatever it is no 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 abraham had issues just like us 
But can we see that God shows the same goodness towards us? He shows a love and a goodness that draws us to him. And it, it begins to bring us to a place of complete and total trust. Guess what? A trust that leads to obedience. See, it's so much better to go through this process of grace rather than fear. Fear may get you to look right or to perform right, but a heart change gets you to be who you always were all along. It's obedient because you trust, because God loves and his grace is sufficient. But finally, on that note, as fathers who begin to see that, can we see ourselves as dads who who show goodness, who show unconditional love to our own children? And in those moments, we create trust in them toward us. But guess what? We also help them develop a proper perspective of their Heavenly Father. Happy Father's Day. You may not be perfect, but you are amazing. You may not get it all right, but guess what? You can have an ear to listen. You can encourage. You can be present. And present doesn't just mean, well, I live with my kids. Man, there's many times that I have to go... Uh, you're not being present right now. You're there, but you're not there. Come on. Will you stand with me? I want to read this quote from John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. I love this. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. See, the gospel, the good news, the grace of God is so much better than what law could do for us. Come on. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless, even in moments where we don't trust you, even in moments where we go the other way. But no matter how far we go, in whatever direction, you are there with us. You never remove your presence. You never give us more or less love. I pray this morning that we're awakening to this idea and we're seeing it from a perspective that maybe we've never seen before. That's called repentance. We're changing our mind. We're seeing things in a different way. Your love, Heavenly Father, is a love that causes us to change from inside out. And just like Abraham was on a 20-plus year journey, so are we. It might take six months or six years or 20 years in different areas of our life to really, truly see and understand, but you'll never give up on us. And I just pray that it wouldn't have to take that long, that, you know, through listening, you know, surrounding ourselves with people of like faith and a better, having a better understanding of who you are, that we would grow even quicker to this place where we begin to see the truth of who we are, our true origin, our authentic identity, and we begin to say, yes, this is who I am. And all that's left to say is, wow, and thank you. Sometimes that's the best prayer. Wow, God, thank you. We thank you for your presence in our life. 
may we begin to feel that more than just Sunday at a church service or a church meeting, but throughout the day, even the worst parts of a day, we can say, you know what, God, you're still there. I need you now. I need you in this situation. I just need your peace right now in this situation. I need your wisdom. And we thank you that you're a loving Father who gives. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.